Welcome to Regulated and Relational, the bi-monthly podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. Today, our hosts, Julie Beam, ATN's Executive Director, and Ginger Healy, ATN's Parenting Program Director, are going deeper into the topic of shame and what can be done to heal and prevent shame and why we as parents and educators need to recognize the toxicity of shame. Let's join them. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Regulated and Relational, our podcast produced by the Attachment and Trauma Network. I'm Julie Beam. And I'm Ginger Healy. And we are excited to share with you our trauma-informed and attachment-focused strategies and the tools and information that you need to know. Today, we are going to be back exploring a very important topic and often something that's difficult to talk about, and that is the subject of shame. In our last podcast, we defined shame the way that Dr. Brene Brown does, which is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Shame is something that we've all experienced, and we've experienced it because of something that has happened to us, something that we've done or we failed to do that makes us feel unworthy of connection. That's right. And in our last podcast, we also differentiated from shame and guilt, shame being I am bad versus guilt being I did something bad. And we spent a good deal of time talking about how shame is not something we want for the children in our lives because of the incredibly huge impact it has on their view of self, of who they are. So we talked about shame proneness, which is the propensity for feeling shame. And I'm not sure that we directly linked shame to depression in our last episode, but researchers have. And in fact, they have found that those of us who are more shame prone are at a higher risk for depression. The research is very strong. In fact, there have been over 100 studies involving more than 22,000 subjects to show that there is a clear connection and that there is a link between shame and anxiety disorders. So there's a lot there, but Where I want to kind of talk next is also the link between shame and addiction. And if you have heard of Dr. Gabor Mate, which I hope you have, he is a leading expert in the topic of shame and addiction. He discusses how addiction is the result of a need to escape the emotional pain of early childhood trauma. He says that in the life of every person who has ever been addicted, there is always trauma. And addiction helps find relief in the short term and not just drugs and alcohol, substance abuse, but sex, gambling, shopping, eating, gaming, pornography, work, relationships, all of those can have an addictive factor to them. And so that is what he is referring to and saying that everyone he has ever met that has those that it can be linked to early childhood trauma. So he advises us to, instead of asking why the addiction, you know, why are you doing that? Why can't you stop doing that? He asks, why the pain? The pain is what causes a disconnection from yourself because it's too painful to be yourself. And so that's where the addiction comes in, numbing, not dealing with those emotions as a survival tool, 
using addiction as a coping mechanism and an answer to dealing with their shame. Recently, I just watched a documentary of his called Wisdom of Trauma, and there was a really compelling story of a woman, and it has just kind of stuck with me. This woman was kidnapped at the age of 16 and held by her captor for six months. And you can just even imagine what, you know, went on with her during those six months, how horrific that must have been. And when she finally was released by her captor, she went into a dark period of her life and, you know, used substances to numb all of that pain. And so years later, Dr. Gabor Mate met with her and asked her about this experience that she had. And he said, during that six months of your captivity, were the police desperately looking for you? Was your mother desperately searching for her? And she said, no, my mom didn't look for me. She just assumed that I had run away. And that was such a painful thing for me to hear. So I can't even imagine the pain she must felt in knowing nobody looked for me, nobody searched for me. And so in digging, Dr. Mate kind of discovered that this woman had all these messages embedded inside of her, that she was not lovable, that she was bad, that she was not worth protecting. That was the message sent to her by a mother who did not call the police when she did not come home. And so this woman, you know, started using drugs to just numb all of that. She was experiencing this total isolation and feeling alone and feeling unworthy of a mother who would search for her and protect her. So, so many feelings of shame in that. And Dr. Mate also went on to say during that documentary that addiction is actually a normal human response to trauma because when people are suffering, they just want to escape that suffering. That is normal. When I suffer, I want to escape that suffering, right? So this addiction, it's an effort to complete themselves. It's an effort to fill the holes of what is missing to cover up that emptiness and escape from reality in a way that, you know, you're seeking that soothing when you just cannot find that peace. And that to me is just a whole different way of looking at addiction. I just wanted to take a moment in this episode and hopefully help us all shift our paradigm of that because I know that many of us look at addictive behaviors in a very different light on why, you know. So I just want to, in this section of this quote by Dr. Gabor Mate, he said, not only is the urge to escape pain shared by all addicts, substance abusers or not, the same brain circuits are involved in all addictions, from shopping to eating to dependence on heroin or other opioids, the same brain circuits the same brain systems involving pleasure and reward and incentive, the same neurochemicals, not to mention the same emotional dynamics of shame and lack of self-worth and the same behaviors of denial and dishonesty and subterfuge. Wow, Ginger. If you aren't familiar with Gabor Mate's work in the realm of hungry ghosts and other things that he's done, and you are 
interested in the topic of addiction or you work with folks who are struggling with that, or you yourself or others in your family have addictive issues, I highly encourage you to look at his work because it really does draw that work back to trauma and to shame. So spoiler alert, the whole reason we're telling you all of these things that are rooted in potential shame is to remind you that shame is a dangerous thing. It's dangerous for us to not recognize and address our own shame. And it's dangerous to use shaming as a tool to get our children to behave, to get our children to comply. And that I think is the message we're hoping you will gather from this because not only can it lead to addiction, but here's some other things that shaming can do. The research tells us that experiencing shame can lead to aggressive behaviors and to anger issues because you're feeling all this pain and the pain builds up and you want to push it down and you want to relieve it. And some of us relieve our big negative emotions by exploding behaviors, right? So that also means that shame is a huge component in bullying. And we know bullying is a huge problem for our society, especially for children in schools and also for lots and lots of adults, sadly. It's easy to envision that children who are bullied are often the ones who are feeling a great deal of shame because you can imagine that as being the bullying victim. They get shame about the situation, part of the overall toxic stress that they experience by being bullied. And of course, the children who are bullied, we know this from research, are more at risk for attempting suicide, for having longer term serious mental illness. So we know that from the research that makes sense to us. But here's what you also need to know. Those doing the bullying are also likely to be children who are experiencing shame. And in order to protect themselves from this overwhelming negative emotional pain, they're acting aggressively towards others. It's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? that both the person who is the victim of bullying and the person who is doing the bullying are in pain. They have, are experiencing significant shame. And if that doesn't convince you that shame is a problem, then even the folks around them, the children who are witnessing the bullying, especially if they don't know what to do, if it brings up negative feelings for them. And so they do nothing, they don't respond to what they're seeing, or maybe they participate in the shaming of the victim that then causes them pain and anguish and ultimately shame too. Um, It can become quite the vicious cycle. I think it's important to understand what's going on physiologically for us when we feel shame Shame, like fear, hijacks our emotional brains, and that in turn takes our thinking brains offline. When you're in a shame storm, just like when you're overcome with feelings of intense fear, it's very hard to think. Your logic and reason are often just not accessible to you, so you use that as a defense mechanism. And often what you see in people who are highly shame-prone and who are carrying shame are some very complex maladaptive behaviors. Just like we talk about trauma in terms of fear and being able to flip your lid and lead you to very negative behaviors, shame is just as likely to operate in exactly the same way. And that leads us to an important point about shame, that shame is much more likely to cause destructive behaviors than to cure it. 
So let me say that again. Shame is much more likely to cause destructive behaviors than to cure it. So whatever reason that you're using it, it's not going to work. It doesn't work. So it makes shaming such a dangerous behavior management tool when adults use it that if we're full of shame, we're going to try to alleviate that shame by pushing it down as it bubbles up, often causing us to blame others and refuse help from others and even be cruel to others. There's no research out there that says that public shaming of people teaches them to change their behaviors. Instead, it's kind of like electric shock. A person might avoid a behavior for which they've been shamed because of fear of feeling shame, but it doesn't change the negative feelings around this. And they often actually bubble up in other ways, anger, cruelty to yourself or others. And that means that shame actually impairs our learning of and ability to use empathy. And Brene Brown points out that empathy is the antidote to shame. And so the reverse of that is that the more shame prone we are, the less able we are to access the empathy for others. In fact, when we're feeling the big pain of shame and less able to access any empathy for ourselves or for others, we're more likely to rely on blaming to make ourselves feel better. I have sure seen that. And many blame themselves. especially children. It's all my fault. I'm just as stupid as everybody says I am, but blaming others can also occur. And while blaming others kind of makes you feel better temporarily, it reduces your own anger buildup because of the shame. It can really damage relationships. And I see it becoming a habit, you know, kind of a go-to response in those scenarios. Yeah. And you see it all the time now. I mean, I think we really do have a blame epidemic, if you will, in society right now. It sure feels that way on social media. I mean, like that's kind of the thing. All of our complex problems are distilled down into sound bites on social media. And so in order to get into that conversation, that soundbite conversation, it's like we have to pick a side, right? We have to have an opinion of whose fault is it that this happens, whatever the thing is, has happened and who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. So there's a lot of blaming that's going on. And it's like, we're training ourselves to respond to our negative feelings with, well, it has to be somebody's fault and making those snap judgments. And that's, you know, what we learned through Brene Brown's work and others is that that really is the opposite of empathy, right? Exactly. Yes. Empathy. Let's go ahead and define it. It's defined as the ability to understand another person's thoughts and feelings in a situation from their point of view, rather than your own point of view. It differs from sympathy. Sympathy, you can kind of remain emotionally detached. There is a video out there that Brene Brown has done. It's a video on empathy and it shows the difference, the clear difference between the two. And it's, to me, it's very meaningful. She explains that sympathy is where you, you can see someone down stuck in a deep hole, but you remain on high ground and you look down and you talk to them from above the hole. The sympathetic person, you know, They may try to put a silver lining on the other person's situation, but they don't acknowledge the person's pain where conversely empathy 
is where you're feeling with the person. You're actually climbing down in that hole, sitting beside them, making yourself vulnerable to sincerely connect with that person. And I swear, every time I watch that video, it just strikes an emotional chord with me because Mm -hmm. you can see yourself in all three scenarios and situations. We've been down in the hole. We've been on top of the hole looking down and hopefully we are getting down. It's an easy way to get that concept in because it's animated and it's short. It's a great way to explain that concept to lots of folks, you know, children and adults alike. So I hope we link it in the show notes. Yes. If you haven't seen that, it's a good way. And sympathy is good. Don't get us wrong, but empathy is better. It's healthier. It's more connected. There is a very distinct difference between the tool. I want to tell you about three different types of empathy. Psychologists Daniel Coleman and Paul Ekman, they identified these three different types. There's cognitive, emotional, and compassionate. So cognitive empathy is where you know how the other person feels, what they might be thinking. It's really the ability to take their perspective and wonder what it's like to be in that person's shoes. And emotional empathy is where you're connected in a deeper way to that person. You actually feel what they feel. An example of this is when you see another person getting physically hurt, you actually cringe because your brain recognizes that big physical pain for that person because we've all felt physical pain before. And the same can happen with emotions, you know, interpersonal situations. And then there's compassionate empathy. And that's not only understanding what the person is feeling and actually feeling it, but it's where you're moved to help them. It enables us to act. It's a balance between the two in one respect, because while our emotional brain is feeling the feelings of the other person, our cognitive brain is able to remain online and initiate action to help. That's a tricky step. I mean, I watch my children mentally move through that because if you are emotionally empathetic about something. If you're really feeling what the other person is feeling, sometimes the feeling's so big, it keeps you from acting, right? You're stuck down in the hole with them. And the whole point is how do I feel it so that I am truly empathetic and compassionate enough to then go ahead and be able to act, to use Mm -hmm. my brain to do that. I want to think and talk a little bit about compassion, because in a lot of this literature, what to do about shame, compassion comes up a lot and self-compassion for your own shame is so incredibly important. It comes up in all the research about what to do about your own shame. In my research for this podcast, the self-compassion came up and a woman whose name is Kristen Neff emerged as the leading researcher and teacher of this concept of self-compassion. She actually has a website called selfcompassion.org and she defines it, which we're all about good, strong definitions as she defines self-compassion as offering yourself the same compassion that you have for others. So of course the trick is you have to have the compassion for others, right? But she describes this in three different elements that I think are really important. The first one is self-kindness versus self-judgment. And I don't know about you, Ginger, but I'm all about the self-judgment a lot of times. A lot of times the internal talk in my head is, why did you do that? 
That was a stupid idea. You should have done it this way. Could you not understand that this was going to happen this way? You know, well, like, what were you thinking? But when we recognize that failure and feeling inadequate and suffering are all part of the normal human experience, rather than ignoring the pain that we feel, because that's the other thing we can do is we can just ignore that we're feeling awful or criticizing ourselves for our weakness, which is one of the places that I land a lot. We recognize that being imperfect is inevitable. I mean, perfect might be a goal, not even sure it should be a goal at this point, but it's inevitable that we're not going to get there all of the time. So we need to try to be gentle with ourselves, try to be kind with ourselves, you know, recognize that we need kindness as much as other people do, right? So the second is common humanity versus isolation. When we get frustrated sometimes, I know that I can speak for myself saying, yes, I felt this way before. We start to get irrational and we have this pervasive sense of I'm the only one who feels this way. I'm the only one who's ever had this level of suffering or this problem. And, you know, maybe I'm the only one that's ever had that exact problem. But the truth is that all human beings suffer. We've all felt shame. We've all felt inadequate. We've all had emotional pain and struggles. We've all been imperfect. So recognizing that what I'm going through right now, what I'm experiencing is common to other people helps us feel so not alone, right? It's a shared human experience. And I think that's at the core of good support around us, of good self-care, but also, you know, just recognizing maybe I'm not alone. Maybe this is part of this experience. And, you know, just having that thought lessens it. You know, I'm not alone in this. I'm not the first person ever to have had this problem. So then the third thing that she points out about self-compassion is using mindfulness over what she calls over-identification. So mindfulness is a non-judgmental, receptive mind state where we observe thoughts and feelings, you know, for what they are, that they exist. All feelings are feelings, right? They are what they are without any trying to suppress them or deny them or excuse them or blame somebody else. All of that, you push that aside. You just let the feelings come up for what they are. We can't ignore our pain and feel compassion for it at the same time. It's just not possible. But at the same time, mindfulness requires that we don't over identify with our feelings, right? So that we just are constantly thinking about them and caught up in them and swept away by the reactions we have negatively. Instead, we bring them up, examine them for what they are, and then we're able to do something healthy about them through the compassion. So it's like not getting stuck as a victim in, in that victim role. Exactly. So I definitely think we should also put Kristen Neff's website in our show notes, because the other thing that's on our website that we don't have time to talk about in depth are several meditations and guided practices and ideas for journaling and all kinds of things that you can do to practice self-compassion. And we all know from the brain science that whatever we practice, our brain gets stronger and stronger at. So if you need self-compassion, there's some really great tools there. She talks in depth about what self-compassion is not. So let's clear that up real quick. Self-compassion is not self-pity. We're not talking about feeling sorry for yourself. If you don't turn your focus into how 
you're similar to others, you start to get into that unbalanced, exaggerated personal suffering right back to the I'm the only one kind of thing. And then that's pity, right? So we don't let ourselves off the hook for anything we should be taking responsibility for. Like if we screwed up, we screwed up, right? If I screwed up, I screwed up, but I don't have to criticize myself or deny that and blame somebody else. I can instead turn around and treat myself with compassion. Okay. I screwed up. Humans screw up. I'm a human. Therefore, you know, what am I going to do to adopt a more balanced or objective perspective about what's just happened here and not get into that self-pity? The self-compassion is also not about self-indulgence either. People are afraid to be compassionate with themselves sometimes because they believe that then they're going to become indulgent. You know, like if I show myself some kindness and give myself a pass because it's been a really hard day before long, I'm going to be sitting on the couch all day eating potato chips and watching TV. So I'm not saying that that never happens, but it's very similar to how we believe about punishing children, that children have to be punished for their behaviors instead of taking a tact where we're trying to teach them about the behaviors by showing them compassion, right? We believe somehow both for children and for ourselves that the shame and the coercion that comes with coming down really hard on ourselves is somehow forces us to behave instead of we learn more actually from being compassionate to what has happened to us and to what we're feeling about that, recognizing it for what it is. But we just keep believing that somehow that self-shame, that self-criticism or that shame or coercion of our children is going to teach them, teach us how to behave. And the truth, the brain science is showing the truth is just the opposite. You know, I'm kind of having this aha moment as you're talking too about why self-care has kind of become a bad word or why some feel it's weaponized or why it doesn't work. It all depends on our perception and those inner messages about shame, whether it makes us self-indulgent or whether it makes us, oh boy, that's a whole mm-hmm. There's rabbit. a lot there, isn't there? There's a and lot it's, there. You know, and it all becomes sound bites because that's what we're into. Yeah, be kind to yourself just sounds like a thing you would wear on your t-shirt and not think about it again. But the truth is we really need to kind of dig into that and go, what does it mean to be kind to ourselves? Good stuff. I want to go back for a minute to talking about Brene Brown again and her concept of being shame resilient because I just love everything she talks about especially in her dare to lead about empathy and shame resilience. She actually talks about four different elements of what people who are shame resilient do. And I love these strategic methods. So I want to talk about those. The first one is that she says that shame resilient people recognize shame and understand its triggers. So that means that they both recognize the physical symptoms of shame you know, like this is the behavior I exhibit, whether it be like withdrawal or aggression, whatever it is, putting two and two together and tying those two pieces. So you're recognizing those physical symptoms and understanding what actually triggers the shame, what tapes are playing inside of your head, what messages have you got that, you know, are on repeat that set off that shame alarm inside of you. 
Exactly. It's in that part of the Dare to Lead book, which is a great book for anybody who works and is leading any kind of a situation, right? Um, business or otherwise. She talks about the shame shields that we use. And I found that very interesting that we fall back on these if we don't have awareness around our own shame, if we're not shame resilient and understand what our own shame triggers are. We do these things when we feel shame. We move away which could be withdrawing or hiding or or silencing ourselves or keeping secrets. I got to tell you, I'm a big zipper upper of, you know, if I'm feeling shame, I'm going to get really quiet. That's my first reaction to that feeling, right? Some people move towards, they become very appeasing and pleasing and apologetic and, oh, I'm so sorry. And, you know, all of those things to try to make themselves feel better about that shame in the moment, right? And some people move against, they try to get power over, they start to become aggressive. We've talked about all the bullying and things they fight shame with shame. Well, I did that, but you did this kind of thing and start the blaming, right? So what I want to point out there that those shame shields, when I read that part did for me, the moving away, the moving towards the moving against sounded super familiar from the trauma world. When we look at the freezing, freezing on the fleeing is the moving away, right? The moving towards is the fawning and the moving against is the fighting. So that fight, flight, freeze, fawn response is all there in shame. So shame is very much connected to trauma in that way. I'm so glad that you said that and made that connection out loud because I was just listening to you and I was like, oh my gosh, that's fight, flight, freeze. And there is fun that people pleasing. And so, you know, I'm getting a lot out of this if no one else listens. (laughs) I shared with Ginger before we actually hit the record button that this was a really hard episode to outline because there's so much information about shame that we want you to know and that we want to know and think about. And a lot of times it gets passed over. When we think about trauma, we think about the feeling of trauma as being fear, but the feeling of trauma isn't always fear. A lot of times it is shame. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Let's get back to talking about those factors of shame resilient people. The second one is that They practice critical awareness. Shame causes us to zoom in tight, almost like we're the only one. But if we actually zoom out, look at the bigger picture, we start to realize that there are others who have the same struggles. So that's good. You know, that whole awareness piece is huge. And then the third element is that shame resilient people reach out for help. It helps us to know we're not alone. Feeling alone is universal. And so when we're courageous and when we share our stories, we can experience compassion from others who hear our stories. It is so powerful just to hear me too. We don't heal in isolation. So number four is speak the shame, saying it out loud. That takes away the shame's power. If we speak our shame, it cannot survive because it's no longer a secret. And I was thinking about this last night and there's just so much power in saying it out loud. And I saying that to you because for years and years and years, I held on to a secret inside of myself. And finally, when I felt brave enough and strong enough to speak it out loud, it was almost as if there was a light that shone on it. And I was trying to avoid that spotlight, but what that light did 
I realized was dissipated the shame because shame was thriving in that darkness. So we do need to take away all the power of shame, claim that power for ourselves and not be ashamed of how we have thus far coped with it. I also didn't want to sit in shame thinking that I held on to a secret. For me, I, holding on to it was a coping mechanism and it's how I handled it. And I don't want to be ashamed of that either. So when the time is right for whoever speaking it out loud, that can be a very powerful thing. Shame starts dissipating when we allow space for all emotions and feelings. Dr. Gabramate says that we actually need to befriend our emotions. We need to be a friend to those feelings of anger and suppression. We're so used to saying, don't be angry. Don't feel angry. But when we suppress those emotions, that actually creates the shame. So mm-hmm. we need to dissipate it by befriending them, modulating them, managing them, not just getting rid of them because it is normal to have those human emotions. We have to see the human, not the problem. And that's what I love about Brene's work on empathy and shame resilience. Exactly. And yeah, and that's probably one of the most important takeaways from this conversation and maybe from our podcast in general is that we have to bravely express our emotions and then take them for what they are because we all have them. We all have them. One of the other things that I really appreciate about Dr. Brene Brown's work is that how she has worked those concepts into the workplace and into building businesses and leadership skills. So not only is this practical application for those of us who work with children and our parents and for ourselves individually for our own self-help and growth, but the workplace where adults spend so much of our lives, it needs to be an empathetic place. In fact, I found an article from last September's Forbes magazine. So it's not very old on how empathy is the most important leadership skill, according to some new research. And the article starts by citing the overall decline in mental health and how much that has rapidly declined due to the pandemic and our quarantine and how many more people are reporting anxiety and emotional exhaustion and having trouble concentrating in their work and then just in their lives in general. So then it went on to cite research about how much of the stress of your workplace and of how you're doing your work these days and all that bleeds over into an employee's personal life. And, you know, if you step back and think about it, it's true. If you have bad days at work, it's very hard not to have that affect your personal life. It's very hard not to bring that home, not only in your behaviors and your interactions with your family members, but your sleep and your ability to think about and to actively parent effectively, be in relationship with your significant others effectively. It just, it really causes that stress, not just the behaviors themselves, you know, because we all work very hard to leave our work problems at work on our way home. But the truth is we can't, the stress is there, right? So it cited a new study that says how happy you are at work less the stress is, is directly related to how empathetic the leaders in your work teams and the leaders in your organization are. It was encouraging leaders to look at empathy as being a skill that they really want to develop in themselves and other leaders in their organizations. The research found that empathy 
has the following positive effects. There's more innovation when people feel that their leaders are empathetic to them. There's more engagement in the work process when they feel that their leaders are empathetic to them. There's more retention, especially among women. And I thought this was interesting because the women said they were less likely to think about leaving if they felt like a supervisor understood their life circumstances and they, they were respected and they were valued by their companies and by their leaders and they were understood by their leaders. An empathetic workplace is viewed as more inclusive. Empathetic leaders reported feeling that those who were working for the empathetic leaders said, that, you know, this was a more inclusive place and it was a place of greater work-life balance. 86% of the folks in this research reported that they were able to navigate this balance better because they perceived their bosses being more empathetic and understanding. The article went on to give this what I think is really important tip, and it's important if you're a leader of a workplace, that you not just feel this empathy, that you not just have the cognitive empathy we talked about earlier and the, and the emotional empathy, but that you actually have the compassionate empathy and you express that to your staff, right? That you actually express your concerns and you inquire about the challenges that your staff is having and you actually listen to them, listen to their responses because empathy needs action to be recognized, right? It needs the action and the offer of help just like climbing down in the hole in Brene's video, right? That the leaders need to climb down in the hole with their workers. And, you know, from my perspective of a podcast called Regulated and Relational, that's super duper relational, isn't it, Ginger? Oh, my gosh. Uh, this is so powerful. And you know what I was also thinking about is translating it into the classroom environment. The teacher is the leader of the classroom. The principal is the leader of the school. The superintendent is the leader of the district. And then beyond that, I was thinking about my home and my family and how as a caregiver of these children, I'm the leader. So how am I leading this family and this home? All of this can be translated so well into all of our many situations. And whew, it's bringing up a lot of feelings and thoughts. And I felt you know pretty heavy last night as I was thinking about recording this today, but I'm hoping that we're leaving everyone feeling more inspired. I know at least I am excited. I'm really excited to read more about those self-compassion techniques. I yes. really want to dive into those, you know? I hope everybody will click on that link in the show notes and take a hard look at that. And, you know, my takeaway for the day is that empathy needs action. And it's so important that we build empathy. I think it's one of the major solutions, if you will, to some of the struggles that we have as a society. And, you know, we have been physically isolated from each other for quite a few months now throughout this pandemic. And that isolation has kind of counteracted our ability to have action with each other, to have that compassionate empathy. So we probably need some practice. We might be a little rusty at that. So I encourage you to think about what we've talked about today in all of this. And as always, we would love to hear from you listeners at podcast at attached trauma.org. We would, you know, we would love to hear questions, comments, things that are resonating with you, things that might be confusing you or that you don't agree with too, because we're open to that. 
open to hearing about that. So we're really out of time. This was fun. It went a little long. We hope you hung with us through all of this because we think there's important things in here about shame and compassion and empathy. And we'll catch you all next time. Hey, everybody. We are excited to announce that registration for ATN's fifth annual Creating Trauma-Sensitive Schools Conference is now open. The conference is February 20th through the 25th, 2022. The first three days, February 20th through the 22nd, will be our in-person portion held at the Hilton of the Americas in downtown Houston, Texas. The virtual portion will be February 24th and 25th on a computer near you with opportunity to view recordings for 90 days after the conference. So register now for the best rate. Group rates are available to bring your whole school or organization. This is the largest gathering of trauma-informed resilience-building educators in the world. So go to attachtrauma.org slash conference to learn more, and we will see you all at the conference. This has been another episode of Regulated and Relational. With the holidays just around the corner, join us next time when Ginger and Julie will talk about how holidays can be challenging times for families of children impacted by trauma and toxic stress. This will be a great episode to share with other parents who may be facing these challenges during this holiday season. A special thanks to Lorraine Schneider, our editor, and to Joe Kramer for donating our music. For more information about the Attachment Trauma Network, visit our website at attachedtrauma.org. Show notes and upcoming episodes will be available on our website through anchor.fm. I'm Danny Pankratz. Thanks for listening.